Okay, here we go. Let's play. Lots to do. Lots to do. There's not... Ah, summer's almost on us. Uh, Rogate, the praying church. I, says Jesus, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And, of course, you have this cryptic reference to the ascension, of course, but before the first time Jesus gets lifted up is on the cross. So you get a double reference to lifted up on the cross and all men will glorify me. And then when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to, to myself. It happens in both places, both at the cross. You see that with the thief on the cross, for example, this drawing, this magnetism that Jesus has even in death. And then, of course, the same thing in life. Uh, so uh, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it would be the Sunday in the old series of the Praying Church. And uh, there's just so much to talk about. So let's, let's pray and then we will uh, have a go with that. Lord, you promised to grant whatever we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. So teach us to pray aright and to laud you and praise you with all the saints who never cease in heaven and continue that we too might join the fullness of life everlasting through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, you know, we, we don't have much. It always gets this way. It gets to May and then everything. May is more busy in the church, and I think for you, than Christmas and Easter. So we always, this is always a difficult month. There's a lot coming. There's a holiday at the end, graduation, confirmation, you know, voters meetings, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, stick with it. But there's so much to do, and we don't have much time yet to finish this stuff. But that's better than kind of the other way around. So to pick up sort of where we were. You know, we don't pray to God to inform him. He already knows. And we don't pray to badger him because the truth is he's more willing to give you what you want, uh, you know, than, than you're willing to ask. He, his gifts are always greater than your requests. But we do, so we do then pray in order to receive. And there's a range of things uh, to receive. Later, uh, you know, in about five minutes, we'll talk about what that means for your children for your friends, you know, your siblings, even your parents in some cases. But uh, first, I just want to take you back. One of the interesting things is, and you've heard me make this argument before, which is um, there's a lot of people who um, think they're Lutheran, but they haven't read much Luther. And then sometimes the way we talk um, sort of rankles people. But uh, there's a couple of things here to talk about. And if you have um, the piece from week three... We'll just read a couple of Luther quotes there just to, just to, just to um, let you know this is coming directly from the home office, okay? So um, what's really interesting is that Jesus comes, he gathers us near. We talked about last week how he lets us cooperate in his work, how that cooperation is a very, very wonderful thing, how it's not a matter of you being saved, but it is then a work for eternity. And so this great thing of 1 Corinthians 3 where you sort of you walk through this purgation that will be at one time painful and exhilarating. And, you know, all the evil you've done and every bad thing that's been tainted will be burned away. But everything that's been forgiven and blessed, everything that's been done in the name of Jesus follows you into heaven. And that's what will make heaven such an interesting place, that you take all your good works uh, to heaven with you. Now, between, between now and then, one of the great things is that, um, and this is, you know, People get nervous about this, but this is all straight Lutheran stuff. You know this, we've run this phrase repeatedly in the bulletin where Jesus says we're little Christ to each other. Well, it's not just that we're little Christ to each other. It is also, as you'll see in just a moment, that we are little Christ to the Father. So you might have thought about this in your, when you think about being forgiven, that when, when the Heavenly Father looks at you, what he sees when he looks at you is his son, Jesus Christ. That's why you can approach God without fear, that's why even when you screw up, you're forgiven. That's why your life is marked by um, joy and not by guilt. When the Heavenly Father sees you, when he looks down at you, 
what he sees is his son Jesus Christ. In the same way, when you pray, what, Jesus, what, what the Heavenly Father hears is Jesus praying. It is the most remarkable thing. It's in some ways like um, Jesus is a spell checker. He takes all your you know, prayers that aren't quite up to speed and he filters them and cleanses them and strengthens them and um, shoots them up to, have, to the Heavenly Father. And he's unbelievably happy with that. So when, when we pray, this is terribly important for you to understand, when we pray, um, the Heavenly Father sees Jesus' face and he hears Jesus' words and he listens for Jesus' own voice and then he reacts to me and to you as if I was Jesus. Pause. Because that always makes people... Um, nervous, but you should not be nervous about that at all because if you really, really believe that at baptism you were adopted into the Holy Family, if you really, really believe that at the Eucharist today you were united with Christ as we pray in the prayers every week, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that you were united with Christ, if you really believe as we pray in the colics that we might participate in the holy things, that we might participate in things that are divine, if you really, really believe that, then um, it's true that you can't make a bad prayer. And you can pray with great confidence and boldness. And that is the thing that Luther always points you to. So if you have just, we're just going to do the long pieces. Um, look at, on, this is from number three, working with Jesus in prayer. Listen to Luther, bottom of the page. Sorry for the quality of this. It's not a good copy, but um, someday, you know. So Luther Christ prayed for me, and for this reason, my prayers are acceptable through his. That's a thing that you would normally say, that Christ prays for me. We've already talked about that. That's Romans 8 and also Hebrews all day long. The, uh, Jesus, and the, uh, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit pray for you. That's all over Romans 8. It's also in Hebrews. So this is the bottom of the outline. This is three. This is the quote on the bottom of that. Uh, in darker print, Christ prayed for me. We learned that from Romans, also from Hebrews. For this reason, my prayers are acceptable through his. So Jesus checks our prayers. He insulates our prayers. He wraps our prayers. He forgives our prayers. He makes our prayers better. He lets the Father hear our prayers because they're in his voice. Okay. Accordingly, now look at this. This will, you know, This is a good thing for Lutherans to remember. We must weave our praying into his. And we talked about this. The early church, when they, they spoke the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, and then they would pause and they'd gather up their petitions. Thy kingdom come, pause, and they would gather up the petitions. We've split that now in these later years, but either way still works. Um, you know, in the Catholic Church still, um, there, there is, especially toward the end, where things are woven in. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a normal thing. He is forever the mediator, big M for all men. That's fine. We've, we're used to that, but pay attention. Look what's coming next. Through him, we come to God. That's right. In him, we must incorporate and envelop all our prayers and all that we do. So all our, all our words and all our deeds are wrapped in Christ. Good, we've done that. But all this is said to Christians for the purpose of giving them the boldness and confidence to rely on this man and pray with complete assurance. Okay. For we hear that in this way, now here's where Lutherans get nervous, but this is Luther, so adjust your you know, GPS. Uh, we hear in this way that he unites us with himself. That's what happens in the Eucharist. He unites himself to us. 
Okay, so our prayers to him really puts us on a par with him. Well, it's a very bold thing to say that I'm on the same level as Jesus Christ and merges our praying into his and his into ours. So now, when the Father can't tell the difference between your prayers and his prayers, that's a startling thing to say. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we we talked about how startling it was that you could say, our Father, not my Father. So you don't start the prayer by saying, your Father. You're Jesus' Father, so I'm going to pray to you now. I know Jesus, so you're his Father. The way you would go to somebody else's house and be respectful of a father or mother. No, it's your Father. It's us. It's we, our Father. Now in the same way, we merge our prayers with his and his with ours. What greater honor could be paid to us that our faith in Christ entitles us to be called brothers and co-heirs, that our prayer to be, is to be like his. Now look at this, that there is really no difference except that our prayers must originate in him and be spoken in his name if they are to be acceptable. And we spent a couple of months talking about that. Silence, scripture, meditation, contemplation, imagination, fasting. Okay. And if he is to bestow this inheritance and glory on us, aside from this, look at this, he makes us equal to himself in all things. Ah, That's just the most remarkable thing. I mean, it also means equal not just in blessing but in responsibility. Get busy, friends. His and our prayer must be one, just as his body is ours and his members are ours. Okay? You okay with that? Very bold way to talk. Then look at the bit from First Timothy that's just below. This is about your stuff lasting forever. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received by thanksgiving and made holy by God and prayer. So your prayer actually hallows things. Your prayer, you can pray other things, other people into being holy. You pray toward holiness for them. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, as the temperature rises and your... Um, ready to curse the man who made, made these windows without an opening thing. Um, and I, growing up in a heating and air conditioning family, family where forced air was the rule of the day, and of course in the shoulder seasons we use hot and cold water. We have, pause, thought about going, you know, it's fun that it's a full room and all that, but actually we've been discouraging toward people because there's always people who end up standing and not enough room. We've actually talked about moving into the gym. Uh, we'll see what happens We'd have a little bit of, but it would be a little more comfortable for you, so stick with it, okay? It'll be all right. You okay? Now look at the other Luther bit. With these and the following words, Christ demonstrates what constitutes a true office and function, how necessary the exercise of this is, praying, in Christendom. The prophet Zechariah refers when he says that Christ will pour out and grant the spirit which is called a spirit of grace and prayer, and so we also hear that in Romans. For in all Christians, he will affect and produce these two things. So every Christian will do this. First, he will convince and assure their hearts that they have a gracious God. Secondly, he will enable them to help others, and this is terribly important for where we're going, to help others with their prayer. Okay? And mostly, when, as soon as we get through this, we're going to talk about what it means to help others with your prayer. The result of the first is that they're reconciled to God and have all they need for themselves. Then when they have this, they will become gods. Whoops. Luther, really? When they have this, you will become gods and saviors. Small g, small s. Nevertheless, this is extraordinarily powerful language from Luther. 
who knows the first commandment, that if you make yourself a god, you're an idolater. So you'll become gods and saviors, not so much different than saying you'll become little Christ to each other. Context is everything. They will have this. They will become gods and will be saviors of the world by their prayer. You save the world. That is a remarkable thing to say. Now, you have to pause and back up to what we've said the last couple of weeks with, which is Jesus has given the kingdom to you. He has given you work to do. He lets you cooperate in his work, even in his saving work, right? So, and I just, I'll put it now with a little more bluntly, you're responsible to save the world. And in large measure, your world is saved by your prayers. In a moment, we're going to talk about your kids and your family. But just take this. Your world, the world around you, is saved by your work, by your prayers. That's a startling thing for Lutherans to say. Um, Through the Spirit of grace, and notice how it's always couched in, this is a gift given to you. It's a work given you to do. It's always forgiven by Christ. It's always strengthened by the Spirit. This is really kind of, this is pretty high-level stuff, but it is in fact true. Through the Spirit of grace, they themselves will become children of God. You're used to that. And then as children of God, look at this. They will mediate between God and their neighbor. Um, every once in a while when somebody you know, has an evangelical cup of tea for breakfast, they will come and talk to me and say, do you think you're a mediator? And of course, this is a little like people saying to Jesus, you know, the woman's caught in adultery, can we stone her? There's no good answer. So, you know, in a sense, yeah, Hebrews, and everybody can quote Hebrews to me, there is one mediator between God and man. Yeah, everybody knows that big M mediator. But the reality is, I'm a mediator and you are too. If mediator means you, in some sense, bring people's concerns to God and take God's concerns back to them, that's what a mediator does. We talked before about how your prayers are a bridge. And we looked at the scripture for that. You're a bridging person. You take this mess that is the world, or you take a death, or you take a trouble, or you take a sickness, and you build a bridge back to God. You give access which is what a mediator does. Now, pause before you, you know, you can feel the hive starting to break out for you, especially Lutheran types, right? Here's the thing. Small m, you got to know your big letters from your small letters. You know, you're a mediator because Christ has asked you to mediate. If I just change the word and say to you, you're a witness, you'd all be a little bit happier with that. Or that would ring a little more true. But, I mean, just read your, I mean, look at all the things he said. You're sons of God. You're saviors. You're mediators. You participate in divine things. You do divine work. That's why the church is to be taken seriously, not in a seriously grumpy way, but because the Lord has put divine things into your hands. You know this because you come to the sacraments. They're a divine thing. When you open your mouth or open your hands, you receive a divine thing, the body of Christ. You're used to it in one sense, but also... You know, the beg here is that you would take the work of God seriously, that you'd be a witness, that you'd be a bridge. Though the Spirit, through the, through, I'm sorry, through the Spirit of grace, they themselves become children of God. And then, as children of God, they mediate between God and their neighbor and will serve others and help them attain this too. For once a Christian begins to know Christ as his Lord and Savior, through whom he is redeemed and from death and brought into his dominion and inheritance. Those are, we've, we've taken every one of those words apart this year. 
God completely permeates his heart. Now he is eager to help everyone acquire the same benefits. I have a really good thing. It would do you some good too. In one sense, witnessing is the easiest thing in the world. It's just sharing really good things. It means you're never alone. You're never unloved. You're always forgiven. You don't have to live with shame and guilt. You can be part of a community, and you can work for things that are eternal. That's what the church does, and you get to be part of that. It's a glorious thing. Man, you think this is hot? You should see hell. It is hot in here. I mean, really. I actually know a pastor who preached that sermon once on a really hot day with no air conditioning. He just stood up and said, you think this is hot? You should see hell. And he sat down. I think the people were actually relieved. Uh, He was done. They were done. Let's go home. It's too hot in here. For wherever the spirit of grace resides, there we can and dare. Yes, we must begin to pray. For prayer is the true work characteristic only of Christians. So only a Christian can pray. Okay, because the only real prayer is in the name of Jesus. How you doing? You still okay? That's just bundling up stuff from last week. Um, all right, pause. You okay? All right, let's do this. Um, let's go to this fourth sheet now. I press you a little bit because um, there's so much to do. There's so much to do, and, and uh, we have so little time left, but... You remember long ago, far away, when you did Greek mythology, you remember Atlas who carried the world on his shoulders. In a way, um, this is what you do when you're in the church. There is a way that you carry the world on your shoulders, and you carry uh, back to God. The church, um, you know, the church recognizes that the world seems to get worse and worse, and yet the thing that keeps the world from utterly self-destructing is your prayers which then tells you why you pray and how important it is. I remember long ago, um, I was somewhere where a question was put to a rabbi. And uh, the question was, you said you pray all the time. Um, How come more good doesn't happen? And the answer was, do you know what would happen to the world if I stopped praying? It's a remarkable answer. And of course, you know, your Jewish friends believe that if Everybody in the world prayed at one time. All the faithful Jews prayed at one time. The Messiah would return and the world would end. Okay, so there's always a couple of ways of looking at things. One is, you know, you pray and you pray and you pray to push back the darkness, and the darkness seems to overwhelm. But the other way to look at it is, if people stop praying, the world goes to hell at a much faster clip than it already does. So, um, you know, we probably should localize this. Um, you know, so many people in the church are frustrated that their church isn't growing or they're, they're, they're frustrated that um, so many members of their family don't go to church or they can't seem to get people off the mark or get excited about it. And especially, um, you know, children, especially baptized children who've been brought up in the church or, you know, suddenly they have a grandchild and their grandchild isn't baptized and, you know, it makes them crazy and rightly so. And uh, this is often a point where people despair about the church. They despair about the faith. They despair about their own children. And they, they, um, you know, they ask questions about why this is. And then, you know, I quote, which is not in here, which is, you know, my own uh, despair expressed to Kleinig and his reply in Latin, which always then puts despair in proper format. You know, he quotes to me Anselm where he says, you know, you have not yet probed the darkness of the human heart. So, you know, we, we say to ourselves, you know, why does this happen? You know, we try, we, we try to do our best. We try to be kind. We try to baptize our kids. We try to bring them to the Eucharist. We try to bring them to church. 
they go off to this thing called college and they act as if no church has ever seen them before or they've never seen a church before. Actually, the other thing was a Freudian slip. I have to say, I, I actually, when I took one of my kids to college, I went to three churches, introduced myself as a pastor, left a card, left name, contact information, dorm room. I basically <laughs> said, I'm ratting out my kid. Do you know, um, two of the churches didn't contact my child at all and one um, sent one email. I mean, that's really not engagement, and I was kind of begging a professional courtesy. Um, so part of, the, part of the problem lies with us, you know. You send kids off to do whatever they do, and then you say, pay attention. So we have to be, the moral of the story isn't, forget about the other thing. When people come into our midst, we need to pay attention to them. Um, but on the other side of that, you know, your kids go off the rails, or sometimes it's your siblings, or sometimes it's even your parents. Um, every once in a while, somebody will come in of age and say, I just can't believe this anymore. And you think to yourself, you know, what's gone wrong here? What's going on? What often really happens then is people feel a great deal of shame and guilt. They kind of start talking about their kids. They don't give you a straight answer. Um, and they also begin to feel quite accused by Satan. Um, things like, it's because you're just not a very good parent. It's because you didn't do very well raising your kids. It's because your family was really fractured and you pretended like it wasn't fractured. Or even it gets to the point where people say, you know, maybe I'm no Christian. And what happens then is, you know, an extended family's unfaithfulness. Your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your kids don't go to church. And suddenly, and this has happened here. I mean, this has happened here where people say, you know, if my kids don't believe, then I just won't believe anymore. It can get to that point. Um, and then there's always the question about what to do. And people always want sort of a quick answer. You know, things go badly. And sometimes people absorb a ton of blame. Um, sometimes they offload the blame. Already, um, once this morning, Pastor Nelson has said to me, I guess I'll be the bad guy then. I'll let you take care of him. Okay. Uh, this is why I refuse when anybody says their kid misbehaves in church and they say, you know, tell them what you've done. Or do you want me to tell them what you've done? And I just always say, I love you no matter what your mother is saying right now. Because here's the thing, I'm not going to be the bad guy. You know, I'm not going to be the heavy guy. That's, you know, but I'm sort of, ex I'm sort of suggesting to you that you um, don't be the heavy person either. Here's the reason why. Um, it probably isn't that your kids don't know. It probably isn't that your siblings don't know. It's not that people don't know. I really think this is, uh, I really think this is true, that people usually have done things you know, you turn them loose, they move away, there's not a support system, something hasn't sunk in, for whatever reason, usually people have done something. It's not that they don't care, it's actually that they care deeply, and somewhere along the line, they've forgotten that anything can be forgiven. And I, I was, you know, all great revelations happened while mowing the lawn, but I was thinking yesterday about how, um, honestly, the world really is a shame and honor culture. So many people are driven by shame and honor, which was how the Israelite culture was. It was a matter of shame and honor. And when we're shamed, you know, we hide, we withdraw, we feel bad, we cut off access, we drop out of the family. When people, I mean, your kids go away, and this is true even for your siblings, they go away, they do horrible things, they do things they know are wrong, they do things which you can only imagine because you're locked out of their Twitter account, okay? And, you know... Here's the thing. And then what happens is when they come back to a place like this and you're all bright and shiny having a cup of coffee loving each other, 
they feel like they no longer fit into a place where it was always presumed in the past they fit in. And when people feel like they don't fit in, when they feel unloved, when they feel alone, they don't come back. And it will not help, and I'll just, you know, my own church, but I grew up mostly in churches that did this to people who were sinners. Okay? And let me just say, when you do this, whether it is Satan doing it to you or whether it is other Christians doing it to you, you don't come back. You know, tramping out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. Who's going to run toward that? <laughs> Who get, who's going to get really close to a Jesus or to another person who's going to condemn and destroy them? So the answer is then, what do you do? Well, the first thing is, and I've learned this, um, I sort of knew this intuitively, but I'll say it to you and I'll say it explicitly, and we do it less, and we rebel against it when people occasionally come in and demand that we do it. Um, you, don't, you don't dig for dirt. You don't, when somebody comes in the door, despite what you may or may not have heard in the grapevine, seen on a Facebook account, you know, um, stumbled on in a tweet, it is not your job or mine to dig for dirt. It is not for me or anybody else. And even if you come to private confession, interestingly, a pastor does not probe. A pastor listens, but he does not probe. Because if you probe people, you will kill them. Because there's none of us who can stand it. Okay? So if you have children that you have the sensor off the rails, or you have, you know, um, in general things have gone wrong, or you suspect, or even that you know, you have to be extraordinarily careful, especially with your children, with your own siblings, with your own family. Because I can tell you the easy thing is to complain to people and make ins and outs. That is not the gospel. That is not Christ. And I'll show you in just a second where it's not Christ. A pastor doesn't probe. Occasionally, this happens especially with children or in marriages where somebody will come in and say, you need to get after my wife or you need to get after my husband. And that's a, that's a very delicate thing. I can tell you the first thing is we're not going to get after them. We're not going to follow them around. What we may do is try to love them and engage them, but especially what we're going to do is pray for them. And that, in fact, is what you're meant to do, too. Your job is not to probe. If you begin to probe, there will be no end to what you'll find. If you, if you want to find it, you will find it in any of us, in me, in you. You will find it. Just keep going. You will find it. But when you find it, the question is, what will you do with it? And you may find so much that you may not be able to get your nose above it and get out. Okay? And I would suggest to you that that, in a Lutheran sense, is a, a misunderstanding of law and gospel. It is a predominance of law and little or no gospel. Right? So I remind you where Paul says, sin abounds, 2 plus 2 plus 2. He uses the word for addition. Your sins go up by addition. Two plus two plus two. Sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. He uses a different verb for multiplication. Two times two times two times two, which means your sins go up like this, but Jesus' gospel goes like this. So he floods the landscape and forgives everything, and yes, he does actually know about it. So it's not your job to probe, to dig, to find, to humiliate, to shame. It's not your job, and it takes very little of that, especially with kids, especially with kids over a particular age, and unfortunately that age keeps going down, which is exactly why we chase the Eucharist age down. Because the challenges come at an earlier age, so the Eucharist needs to come at an earlier age. It's a really simple, practical, pastoral thing. Okay. So what you do for people is that you pray for them. 
You don't nag them. You don't bash them. You don't condemn them. You don't humiliate them. You don't wait for um, Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner and say, and how about you? You don't do that. What you do is you pray for people, you forgive them, you love them, you welcome them home. Occasionally, you'll have the chance, be ready when you have it. Occasionally, you'll have the chance, but the, 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 everybody else in the world hates them. If you want to be different, love them. Everybody else in the world shames them. If you want to be different, include them, forgive them. Okay? That's what the church needs to do. Um, if you have a church like that, people will walk through fire to come to it. If you have the other kind of church, you will die and deservedly so. Because it's not the church of Jesus Christ. Pause, you okay? All right, so if you wonder where that comes from, I give you um, the next group of stories. Um, in the Gospels, there are some extraordinarily interesting stories where people come on behalf of other people. Okay, so now what's basically happened is this is the bridging talk, this is the praying talk, this is the loving other part. So here's the thing. You come on behalf of one of your friends. I see you. I know that you're in trouble. I'm going to love you. I'm going to stick by you. But I'm not going to probe you. I'm going to love you to the point where you trust me enough that I can help you. Until then... What I'm going to do is go over here and talk to Jesus, okay? And you see this in the scriptures. You see this um, in the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus. I've got a servant who's dying and almost dead. He comes there. You see this in the Canaanite woman who comes because her daughter um, is troubled and possessed by a demon. That's the great story about, you know, even the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see it in the father, Jairus, who comes for his dead daughter. I mean, come on. You think your kids are troubled? Try, try going to Jesus for your dead daughter and see if you can make that work. You see it for the Roman official who, who comes when his son is dying. He comes and Jesus speaks a word and that kids get restored. Just in Matthew's Gospel, there are nine stories where people go to Jesus for other people. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, here's the thing. If you get the genie that pops out and you get three wishes, the common thing for most of us to do is to spend the wishes on ourselves. I mean, you get one crack at Jesus... You get one crack because he's a busy guy and he doesn't show up that often and he's hard to pin down. You get one crack at him and what do you do? You bring a request for somebody else. That is the ultimate act of love. And that, in fact, is what you do in your prayers. Now, the good thing for us is we get that repeatedly. You see, you see how the question about should I pray or how much I pray or why do I have to pray is such a stupid question? Do you see that? Because this is your crack at Jesus, not only to help yourself, but to go to him and, and piggyback, carry, bring the people that you love who are completely screwed up or in so sick or near to death or unfaithful or whatever. It's your chance to bring them to God and say, um, would, you take, would you take care of them? Um, even, it's very interesting in Matthew 19, where... Mothers are bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples say, that's not what we do. And then Jesus says, actually, that is exactly what we do. Suffer the children to come unto me. Do not hinder them, right? So the one I would give you just to kind of think through is um, the paralytic, and that's the one you have um, written out here. You know this story, and maybe for time, I, uh, we probably should... I shouldn't talk about it. All right, so let's just read it. It's there for you. A few days later, Jesus, this is on number four. 
A few days later, when Jesus entered again in Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come to his house. So, um, and you who've been there, you can think about, you know, you know where that house is now. So he, there's Jesus, and you're, you're there right across the street from the synagogue. So many had gathered that there's no room left, not even at the door. He preached a word to them. Okay, so Jesus' first scripture, he speaks, right? Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic. They got one shot. What do they do? They bring their friend, carried by four of them. So four guys are going to spend their one shot on their friend. Since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. It must have been something to see that. When Jesus saw their faith, so faith takes action, I mean, they're digging. So, for example, if you want to show your faith, you'll come Saturday to the digging thing outside, May 11th. It's all in the Bible that we do here, okay? It's a stretch, okay? It's a little bit of a stretch, okay? Ah, pastors, what are you going to do? When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming, which means he steals God's honor. He does something only God should do. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit. So Jesus sees hearts. We talked about that. Only Jesus sees your heart. Um, you know, We talked about it in terms of prayer and complaint and lament. Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. He said to them, which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take your mat, and walk home. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk home. He got up, he took his mat, he walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now that is a remarkable thing that's going on there. Now, here's the basic problem which is your problem and my problem. They know what they need, but they can't get there. That's no different from your kids who are out of the church. It's no different than your kids who are off the rails. It's no different than your spouse, your brother, your sister, your parents, your best friend. They know what they need, but they don't know how to get there. They can't get there. There's something that blocks them. In a sense, you know, your... um, you know, son, daughter, wife, husband, brother, sister, parent, is crippled, very much like the man on the mat. There's just, there's just no way, for whatever reason, of themselves, of other things, there's just no way. Maybe it's us, maybe it's them, but there's no way they can get to the healing touch of Jesus. There's just no way. They just can't do it. It's beyond them. The new thing uh, in this story is that Jesus sees their faith. Um, And usually Jesus, you'll often run into this where Jesus will look at somebody and say, you know, because of your faith, you're forgiven, or because of your faith, you're healed. What's so interesting in this story is because of your faith, COVID gets healed. Isn't that interesting? Now, we talked about this last week when we talked about borrowing, impossible things and borrowing. It's the same story in a different way. Go get some really good stuff and give it to Kovic, he needs it, okay? How are you going to do that? You're going to pray to Jesus. In your prayers, you go get really good stuff 
and you bring it over here. And then why waste the return trip? If you've ever worked for a trucking company, and I know you have, big rig driver, I see it all over you, then what you want to do is, you know, bring something from the return, right? So you go to Jesus, you get some stuff, you bring it over here, go, give it to him. And while you're here, let me just, you know, we don't have to dig. He's got a load of stuff to bring back to Jesus. We're not digging, it's just kind of spilled out around you. You don't mind if we shovel as long as we don't dig. Yeah, so, yeah, I'd rather, I, that's actually a very honest answer. I'd rather not. Yes, that's right. Just pick up the things you see lying around on the floor and bring those back, okay? Right? Isn't that remarkable? So your faith heals him. Your faith heals your kid. Your faith heals your spouse. You remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, the prayers of a righteous spouse sanctify an unbelieving, unrighteous spouse? Your prayers heal your family. Your prayers heal your friends. Your prayers heal your parents or the people that you're working with. Your faith, your faith saves, heals other people. I can't tell you how the details are exactly going to work out. And if you try to pin this down to a theological, you know, A, B, C, D thing, it's not going to work. Jesus is telling you a story. He's telling you a story about when you see somebody who is spiritually crippled, and it's far beyond your means. We did this last week. It's impossible. You don't have the resources. Of yourself, there's nothing you can do to heal them. It's too big a problem. Okay? It's true for pastors, too. You come to us and you ask us to do impossible things. And normally at the last minute, in the middle of the night, your friends do that to you as well. What do you do? You go, last week, you go borrow something and give it to him. You create a bridge for him to meet Jesus Christ. Your faith, in some way, provides healing for him. I don't know exactly how. All I know, this isn't a one-off story. This happens again and again and again and again in Scripture. Where people pray for somebody else, and that person is healed, whether they're a believer or not. You're that little girl when Jesus says, I don't think I'll heal you because I didn't come for Canaanites, especially demon-possessed Canaanites, especially unclean, non-believing demon because That girl had no idea, and because of the prayers of her mother, suddenly, boom, she's healed. Okay? So, back to where we started. Jesus has given all of you faith. You've come again this morning to the Eucharist. You've had the touch of Jesus. Your friends are around you. They love you. They bless you. They strengthen you. You've had the opportunity to leave all your trash here, and we will take it out for you. That's what the church does. You've had a chance to go home free, without shame, without guilt. You've been resurrected. You get a new life. You've been loved, and you haven't been left alone. You're on your way home to Eden. Think of all the ways over the years we've talked about what happens to you here. The next step for you is to give that to somebody else, to do that for somebody else, to save somebody else, to be gods, to be Christ, to be saviors, to be mediators. All small letters, okay, just in case you're listening on the Internet. Uh, All small letters, but nevertheless, that's the work that God gives you to do. When Jesus says to pray, yes, Mr. Wenty. What people said that? Which people? Yeah, oh boy, the double-barreled, not just Lutheran, but Lutheran pastors. Well, you tell them that I'll take them to lunch if they want to make the drive. Um, Here's the thing. 
If you can't pray people into heaven, you can get them like right to the threshold and give them like a big boot at the last moment. And then gravity takes over. So here's the thing. If you can't pray them all the way into heaven, but see, here's the thing. The text is the text is the text. And it, the, the, the cool thing is, it's not one text. It's like 13 or 14 stories like this. They know what they need. They just can't get there. You know what they need. You know how to get them there. What often happens, of course, in reality is um, Jesus answers those kinds of prayers and often puts you in the position of doing a merciful or kind or forgiving thing, which is just enough. It doesn't take almost, it takes almost nothing to be saved. I mean, Jesus did the heavy lifting. It takes this much. It takes only the touch of Jesus. It takes a very little bit for people to be saved. You've heard me say this a zillion times. That's not the extent of Christianity. But to be saved, it takes a little splash of water and a name. It takes this, I forgive you. It takes, this is my body, this is my blood. It takes, I love you. It takes, you remember we started by saying, anybody who says a prayer is saved because you can't pray in the name of Jesus without being a Christian. It takes a little to be saved. I would challenge the assumption based on how little it takes to be saved and on these stories. Although I would say there is a discussion in there somewhere, but I'm really nervous about the discussion because you know Lutherans, you've met some. Occasionally they'll use a comment like that to what? Do nothing. Not pray, not work, not do, not be little gods, not be little Christ, not be meteors, not be saviors, not be prayers, not be helpers, not be lovers, not be blessers. It's much easier to do this. It comes naturally, right? Just go home and kind of think about this. Look around at all the people you see here crippled and look at your reaction to them, spiritually crippled, who are spiritually broken. Look around at them and ask what your natural reaction to them is. Your natural reaction is often judgment or flight. It's too scary. Or um, I don't have time for that. What Jesus does when people come and constantly interrupt him, he's exhausted. What normally he does is he prays for them, he speaks for them, he goes to his Heavenly Father for them, he heals them, he blesses them, he saves them. Your prayers will do some range of that if you'll only pray. So the thing about do I have to pray isn't even the question. It's just the wrong question. It's just what Christians do. We pray. And when we pray, remarkable things happen. Okay? Um, you all good? Go. Right. And we oftentimes, even with like the media, we see things like, say, for instance, like the bombings and, you know, the shootings that go on. Right. And everybody wants to be in judgment over those individuals that basically did the evil deed. Right. But it's important for us to understand we should be praying for them as well. Right. If we don't understand the circumstances behind how they got there to begin with. You know, um, you know, oftentimes there's sleep deprivation, there's, you know, medications, there's, you know, even being swayed by, like, another family member to be in, like, that type of, like, mentality to basically, you know, do what they do. Right. And so it's important to, you know, understand that we need to be praying for those not only the victims, but the ones that basically are also doing the evil deeds. 
I, you know, all I can say, to, so the question is, you know, what do we do with people who do great evil or who hurt us deeply? Um, I sort of give you three answers to this. There's the very basic answer of Jesus. Um, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. But just on the face of it, that's a very easy thing to understand because you normally know who's cursing you and you normally know who, hate, who are hating you. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Then there's the middle, and you sort of went after the middle. And there's always a range of factors, and, and that's the whole notion of spiritual care, or it's the whole notion of the public square, it's the whole notion of how the world works. And then when you get done all thinking about that, and even if you've got it all figured out, this is what I say to the vicar twice a day or three times, which is, you know what your big mistake is now? <laughs> you thought the world was a rational place. And you thought people could figure it out, and they would act like rational human beings. People are animals. People are subhuman. When you, I mean, listen to scriptures. Why do you bite and tear at each other, right? That's a subhuman animalistic thing. At our worst, we're like animals, right? We've lost to what it is to be human. We've, we've so discovered the image of God. So Alfred North Whitehead, the only simplicity to be trusted is a simplicity beyond complexity. It's very simple. Love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, turn the other cheek. It's very simple to understand what that means. In the middle, it's about why did this happen to me? What did I do? What did they do? How can anybody be like that? How can hate be so much? Ask all the questions you want. Make it as complex as you can. Try to figure it out. It'll keep you from going crazy. And then when you're all done with that, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you. Okay? So you're exactly right. And then there's something beyond that. we got to go. Love you. Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. See ya.